Hello and welcome to the Estate Planners Podcast. My name is Anthony Brinkman and this is the place for will writers, estate planners and solicitors that are interested in learning the tips, tools and technicalities to best help their clients. This is episode four entitled Banks versus Goodfellow. So this is the first episode where we are going to dive into some actual case law, and I'm sure it will not be the last. But this case, Banks versus Goodfellow from 1870, is, as I'm sure you're aware, a very key case. It is the case that established the test for testamentary capacity. The reason that I'm featuring this case so early in the podcast is that if you ascertain that your client does not have testamentary capacity, then fundamentally you don't have a client. Of course, it might be possible to assist the person or their family by other means of making a statutory will or applying for deputyship. But as far as the standard action of taking instruction from your client for their will, lasting powers of attorney, etc., you're unable to do that if they do not have the mental capacity to give you those instructions. So it seems like a pretty strong foundation to build from to have this topic of testamentary capacity firmly understood. And let's start this podcast at exactly that place, testamentary capacity definition of. We have two words there, so let's take the first, testamentary, which means of or relating to a testament. The word testament has two definitions. The first is quite simply a person's will. The second definition is something that serves as a sign or evidence of something else. For example, her test results are a testament to how hard she studied. The will is, of course, the evidence of what a person's wishes are for their estate when they die. Those wishes remain in the person's mind until such time as a will has been made and executed, at which point we then have firm evidence in the real world that other people can see about what those intentions were. The origin of the word is quite interesting. It comes from the Latin testari, which means to testify, and which in turn comes from the word testis, which means a witness. Then we have the word capacity, which means the ability or power to do something or understand something. It comes from a Latin word, capere, which means to take or to hold. And you can see how that word has developed if a mind is able to take or to hold a concept then it has the capacity to do so it has the power or the ability to do that putting those two words together then we have the power or the ability to make a will the case of banks versus goodfellow established the test for capacity back in 1870 And we'll take a look at that test and the details of the case itself shortly. But before I do, I should probably just address one point that might otherwise be on your attention. And that is the question, was Banks versus Goodfellow not replaced by the Mental Capacity Act of 2005? That is, at the end of the day, a more modern piece of legislation that does itself contain a test for mental capacity. So doesn't that now supersede the earlier case? Well, fortunately, I can give you a definitive answer to that, which is no, it doesn't. In 2015, the case of Walker versus Badmin 
established that the more recent Act does not replace the Banks versus Goodfellow test. This has been challenged a couple of times since, most notably in the case of James versus James, and then more recently in 2021 in the case of Clitheroe versus Bond. In short, therefore, the Banks versus Goodfellow test stands. Having put that to bed, let's examine the case itself, and then we can look at the test and its application in practice. The circumstances and events in the case are as follows. The testator was a chap named John Banks. He lived in the Lake District in the north of England and owned 15 cottages in and around the town of Keswick. His family consisted of his sister Margaret Banks, her husband Thomas Goodfellow, and the two of them had a daughter who was therefore John Banks's niece, and she was called Margaret Banks Goodfellow. John Banks's sister Margaret subsequently died, and Thomas Goodfellow remarried and had a son named Edward Goodfellow. There was also a half-brother of John Banks named Jacob Banks, who had a son, John Banks Jr., who was therefore the testator's half-nephew. Now, there are a couple of Johns and a couple of Margarets in there, and the sequence of who died first matters in terms of who would end up inheriting. And this would be a whole lot easier if I could put a diagram of the family on a screen. But this is a podcast, so to keep matters simple, I'm going to simply cut straight to the end game and say that if the testator's will is upheld, then Edward Goodfellow would inherit. If the will failed, then the half-nephew John Banks Jr. would inherit. Hence we have Banks versus Goodfellow. The nature of the case was, of course, to do with the mental capacity of the testator to make a will. John Banks Jr. was claiming that the testator didn't have the capacity to make a will, and we know from case notes that the testator certainly did have some issues. Here's what it says. Quote, It is a fact beyond dispute that the testator, John Banks, had at former times been of unsound mind. He had been confined as far back as the year 1841 in the County Lunatic Asylum. Discharged, after a time, from the asylum, he remained subject to certain fixed delusions. He had conceived a violent aversion towards a man named Featherstone Alexander, and notwithstanding the death of the latter some years ago, he continued to believe that this man still pursued and molested him and the mere mention of Featherstone Alexander's name was sufficient to throw him into a state of violent excitement. He frequently believed that he was pursued and molested by devils or evil spirits, whom he believed to be visibly present. End quote. So yes, there were clearly some considerable issues. And isn't the name Featherstone Alexander just the most wonderful name? However, to balance the ledger, he did have some business acumen and he had some financial sense. A little later in the judgment, it says, quote, On the other hand, it appeared that the testator managed his own money and was careful of his money. According to the evidence of a witness named Tolson, who had acted as his agent in receiving the rents of some cottage property at Keswick, amounting to about £80 per year, the testator had not only always showed himself capable of transacting business with him, but had also, on the last occasion of Tolson's coming to pay the rents, suggested to him to take a lease of the cottages in question, 
so as to relieve him, the testator, from all risk or trouble in the matter. He had also desired Tolson, when he came to pay over the next half-year's rents, to bring with him a Mr Ansell, an attorney of Keswick, as he wanted to see him about making a will. End quote. Mr Ansell was indeed the solicitor that took instructions from John Banks on the 2nd of December 1863 and drew up the will, which was executed on the 28th of December 1863. A year and a half later, Mr Banks died. The initial trial took place in 1869 and the jury was directed to decide whether, quote, on the 2nd of December 1863 or on the 28th of December 1863, or on both, the testator was capable of having such a knowledge and appreciation of the facts, and was so far master of his intentions, free from delusions, as would enable him to have a will of his own in the disposition of his property, and to act upon it. End quote. Now, the court found in favour of the will, but John Banks Jr. then sought a retrial. The grounds of that retrial were that the judge had misdirected the jury, Quote, in leaving it to the jury to decide whether John Banks was free from delusions, did not proceed to tell them that the delusions, under which he had undoubtedly before laboured, might not have been present to his mind at the time of making the will, yet, if they were latent in his mind, so that if the subject had been touched upon, the delusions would have recurred, he was of unsound mind and therefore incapable of making a will. End quote. So what we have here, then, is an attempt to suggest that the fact of having an underlying condition, even if not present or active at the moment of making the will, and even if not directly affecting that specific decision being made, should be enough to invalidate a testator's ability to make a will. This retrial confirmed that the original decision was correct, and the will was upheld as valid. In his summary, the judge stated the following, which is the famous Banks versus Goodfellow test in relation to the power of an individual to make a will. Quote, it is essential to the exercise of such a power that a testator shall understand the nature of the act and its effects, shall understand the extent of the property of which he is disposing, shall be able to comprehend and appreciate the claims to which he ought to give effect, and with a view to the latter object, that no disorder of the mind shall poison his affections, pervert his sense of right, or prevent the exercise of his natural faculties, that no insane delusion shall influence his will in disposing of his property, and bring about a disposal of it which, if the mind had been sound, would not have been made. End quote. So let's break that down and isolate each of the four parts to the test. Number one, to understand the nature of the act and its effects. The act is, of course, the act of making a will. Does the testator understand the nature of the act? Does he or she understand the effects of the act? Think about how you establish that with your client. Presumably, hopefully, you will open the more formal part of your client meeting with some open questions about what the client is hoping to achieve. Why did they want to see you? What concerns do they have? And hopefully you're making good notes about their response. 
Typically, of course, your client will respond by saying that they want to make a will. But as we covered in an earlier episode, this isn't quite the answer that you're looking for. Why do they want to make a will? What are they hoping for the will to achieve? By getting a comprehensive answer to that question, you should be firming up on this first element to the test. Number two, she'll understand the extent of the property of which he is disposing. The extent of the property. Does the testator know what property he or she is disposing of in the will? Consider again your fact find, which hopefully contains information about the contents of the estate. If you have drawn your client's attention to this matter and you've made good notes covering the extent of their estate, then you're ticking this second box in the test. Number three, she'll be able to comprehend and appreciate the claims to which he ought to give effect. In this third element, we have the testator understanding, considering and appreciating the various people in their life that might have an expectation of inheritance. Who has a potential claim on the estate? Once again, it is the fact find that you rely on here to guide your client. It should contain family information, perhaps a family tree, or at least the people in the testator's family, but also any other financial dependents, whether they are family or not. And then we have point number four, and I'm going to shorten this somewhat from the wording in the case. The testator has no disorder of the mind that perverts their sense of right or prevents the exercise of their mind in disposing of their property by will. Of the four points of the test, this one might be the trickiest for you to evidence, so let's get some solid and stable data in place for you to think with. Your starting point for any assessment of capacity is just common sense. Consider that the first principle of the Mental Capacity Act is the presumption of capacity. Or think of it this way, how do you know that anybody has mental capacity? How do you know that I have mental capacity? or your brother or sister or mother or father. The starting point is, of course, a simple common sense approach to is this person making sense or not? Of course, there will be occasions when you might legitimately question your client's capacity, or they may have a diagnosed condition that means you want to pay more attention to detail and record more attendance notes, including a more thorough mental capacity assessment. And if in doubt, or if there is anything particularly contentious about the case, then follow the golden rule and have your client obtain an independent medical opinion. So a point that's worth noting here is how to address this rather sensitive issue with the client. You certainly don't want to insult them by suggesting that a mental capacity assessment is needed if you have any doubts yourself about the client's capacity. So what you could do is turn this around and Rather than making it about them, make it about those that might possibly contest the will in the future. Let's suppose, for example, that John Banks was alive today and that you were writing his will, leaving the estate to his niece. You know, having done a thorough fact find, that he has a brother that would stand to inherit under the laws of intestacy if the will was to fail. So perhaps the conversation could go something like this. Mr Banks, you have a considerable estate with 15 properties and your wish is for it to pass on to your niece. 
we're going to put a will together that does exactly that. However, if you didn't make a will, or if your will was to fail, then your brother would inherit the estate. How would you feel about him inheriting? Well, that isn't what I want. My, my brother's okay, I don't dislike him, but we don't have much to do with each other. Whereas my niece, she's cared for me, she's supported me these last few years, and, and I want her to have a good start in life. Well, fair enough, Mr Banks. One of the most common ways for a will to fail or a will to be contested is on the grounds of mental capacity or the lack of capacity. Now, I can see that you do have capacity to make a will, and my assessment would carry weight in court. But what I'm going to suggest is that we try to eliminate any possible contest of the will by obtaining an independent assessment of your mental capacity. That way we're minimising the chances of it ever even getting to court on those grounds. That will save your niece a lot of upset and potentially a lot of cost. And like the old saying goes, an ounce of prevention is worth a ton of cure. So you can see how taking that approach, you're making it much more about the potential failure of the will or the potential contest of the will in the future and, and helping the niece, helping the beneficiary uh, to remove upset, to remove cost, etc. You're making it much more about others rather than about the testator, the person that you're sat with and taking instructions from. Okay, so there we go. That is Banks versus Goodfellow, one of the most key cases for you to be familiar with and featuring I'm sure you'll agree one of the best names, Featherstone Alexander. Mental capacity is, is a big subject, it's a deep subject, and I think it's a fascinating subject. I'm sure we'll be returning to this again from perhaps a few other viewpoints in the future. As far as Banks versus Goodfellow is concerned, I, I would actually recommend to you reading the full judgment. It's 24 pages long, so it's not a huge task and it's well worth the time. I hope you found that useful. All the very best until the next episode. I shall look forward to speaking with you again then, and thank you for listening.